to another edition of Chapters. My name is Jim Derrick. I am thrilled to welcome two very, very dear friends to our studio, Caleb and Chris Daniloff. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you both. Yeah, it's oh, great, it's to, be great here. to be here. This is a day that's been marked on my calendar for quite a while. We are going to dig into a story today that has been transformative for me personally. It, it most certainly has implications for anyone that may be listening whose loved ones, or even they themselves, are struggling with mental health and or substance misuse. And it is that backdrop that we all met through a organiz- wonderful organization called Learn to Cope. Yep. We met as parents of children that were struggling. And I know it's been a very, very long haul for all of us, but the message that we're going to share today is really the magic of peer support and how that magic literally, as I said before, has transformed my life and certainly had uh, wide implications for you. So, Caleb, I want to start with you. And first of all, thank you for being here. That's my pleasure. Um, Caleb, you are an author who has written an absolutely stunning piece in this month's Runner's World magazine. And I encourage everybody to go out and get this piece, and it's called Running with Hank. Caleb, can you talk to us a little bit about the genesis of Running with Hank? Hank belonged to our daughter. Um, He was a rescue from North Carolina, and, you know, they were absolutely best friends. Um, You know, she taught him all kinds of tricks, got him the fancy sweaters and the fancy coats. I mean, just, you know, adored each other. at the same time, she had been struggling for a while uh, earlier with an eating disorder, um, and then she got into drinking and then uh, got into some harder stuff. And when she got Hank, she, there was a little bit of a lull or we were, you know, things didn't seem as bad. And, uh, you know, I thought Hank was a, a great thing for her. And, uh, you know, then things got bad. And, um, you know, she started asking us to watch him. She had moved out to her own place, and she started asking us to watch him. And we we would happily, because he's a, like, joyful, rambunctious, you know, big personality, very energetic. So we happily would take him. And then, you know, the requests got more frequent, and then they got longer. And then she, uh, you know, basically was having us, you know, watch him more and more. And... Um, basically stopped asking for him back and we knew we knew things were bad at that point if she was starting to neglect Hank um, right and we knew that there was uh, you know hard drugs in the past and you know we just we were sure that this was back right um, and you know we took Hank in, in basically and he as I mentioned is super energetic he was bouncing off the walls and you know at that time I'm a runner and at that time my running had sort of uh, you know really degraded it, you know that's that's always been my sobriety tool and my mental health tool sure and I was sort of losing connection with it and um, and but Hank needed exercise mm-hmm. um, and so we would go for walks and um, you know he'd be straining at the leash and so you know I'd, I would try jogging a little bit and he would start taking off and so in a lot of ways he sort of um, you know got you know got my running a little back on track right the the other part of the story is the fells the Middlesex fells which is north of Boston and uh, and maybe I'll let Chris tell this part of the story because yeah. uh, it involved our first sort of four into the fells with Hank, um, and it was on the tail end of a, a pretty dramatic incident right. with Chris and Shay. Thank you, Caleb. And I, and I want to, Chris, um, just explain for our listening audience the depth of Shay's, Shay's difficulties, which you highlight in this article, because this running with Hank is kind of the culmination of, of many, many years, more than a dozen years of struggle for Shay, right? Yeah. And so her 
addiction had escalated over a period of years, right, Chris? That's right. And um, and went on to include fentanyl and and, and heroin use. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, right. As you said, uh, you know, we had struggled for a number of years first, you know, like anxiety, depression, moving into an eating disorder. And with her also uh, stronger and stronger prescription drugs being, you know, um, prescribed to her. And uh, when Hank came into the picture, it was, as Caleb said, sort of on a time where things seemed to be going okay. And that you know, this could work. But we all loved Hank. He was in our house for a while. And then when, as Caleb said, moved out. But um, the struggle was real. And uh, we suspect, you know, we did know it's like, you don't know what to do about it. But you know, there's substances and you're not, you, you don't know how to fix that for them. And we, Shay and I, as Caleb mentioned this, uh, you know, ill-fated trip, she and I were going to Mexico, just the two of us. We tried to do a mother-daughter thing on a regular basis. And um, so on that trip, again, me sort of feeling like I wasn't sure why, you know, she kept, you know, dozing and nodding off and, and physical symptoms that I couldn't explain, except that I remember being in a shuttle on the way to our hotel thinking, God, you know, people, people, uh, I feel like I'm with a person, a drug addict here, which is exactly what was the case. But I, you know, you want to believe when they tell you they're okay. And I, and I wanted to believe that even though, and I didn't really know, you know, I have to say, like, I just didn't, I didn't really know the symptoms of uh, withdrawal. And uh, this was a trip that um, was, you know, probably less than 24 hours from Boston to Mexico and back. And uh, not sure what was going on with her as we finally got to our room and she was in bed and didn't feel good. And, you know, she was freezing and I'd put clothes on her and, and get in bed with her sure. and kind of hold her. And But I realized when I would leave the room, like I left the room to get something to eat, I came back and this was someone that couldn't even get out of bed, but I was noticing, you know, there was a book on the floor and her bag had moved and and that sort of led me to... Um, go, you know, look at the book and start going through the pages. And I found what turned out to be, you know, through a, a, a Google image search, Suboxone tabs. Right. And then um, realizing that she had been using opioids and thought she could just bring some, buy Suboxone tabs on the street and then, you know, see herself through detox in Mexico and then be okay for the rest of the trip. Mm. Not happening. Right. And anyone that hasn't experienced withdrawal from opioids. I mean, this is, which I haven't, but it's been reported. It is something that won't kill you, but you really want to die. It is the worst possible experience exactly. physically and mentally. And exactly. I th- and I think in this case, it was it's something called precipitated withdrawals, which is when the bot, you know, so Suboxone is used as medication-assisted treatment to sort of blunt the, blunt the cravings um, of opioids. But the body has to be fully detoxed from heroin and opioids in order for Suboxone to be effective. Um, and in this case, you know, she clearly obviously still had, you know, heroin and opioids in her system. And then she was also taking Suboxone. And so that sent her body like instantly into very severe withdrawals. And so those are called precipitated withdrawals, which are, I think, supposed to be even worse. I, I can't even imagine. 
literally. And so you're now in Mexico. Right. Like and we're in Shay s- starts to go in withdrawal. Right. And we're in uh, Tulum, which is really where we were, was super undeveloped. And, you know, when I kind of piece together what was going on. Of course, that thought is like, oh, my God, you know, what if this kid needs medical help? Really, where we were was super undeveloped, yeah. except for beautiful beaches, right? Now, are you having conversations with Shay about this? Is she willing to talk to you about it and say, gee, this is what I was planning? Or or is this just catching you all off guard and by surprise? This caught me very off guard and by surprise. Mm-hmm. Like, she was just in a bed, not wanting to talk, saying she was sick, uh, not knowing what it was saying it was the flu. I mean, this is what she was presenting to me when right. I was like, you know, are you on something? Mm-hmm. Did you have you been taking something? You know, um, you know, she was trying to hide what was going on. And then I found the tabs and did, you know, you know, I'd hike up to the office where there was Internet, <laughs> you know, like. Right, right. And, uh, trying to patch and, together yeah, some communication. Exactly. Yeah. And figured out what it was. And yeah. I'm doing Google searches up there oh to goodness. figure out what was going, what this what it, what was happening here. Um, and I did go back and confront her with this and um, also basically said, get your stuff together. We're going home and then, you know, get our flights fixed and all this stuff for, you know, basically what I felt was a medical emergency. You know, she was in rough shape. And how long had you been in Mexico at that point? Three hours. I mean, so three hours. Yeah. And, and here you are. You've got to come back. Yeah, we've got to come back. And, and this, if I read this right, this is 2017. That's, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. But this is after years of struggle. So. Yes. And, yes. you know, the person listening to the average person that hasn't experienced this may, may be confused. This is very common, uh, this being manipulation, not knowing whether or not somebody's using or indeed in recovery, trying to figure it out, the journey of substance misuse with a loved one is a tremendously challenging to say the least and that's putting a smile on it tremendously difficult process which drags us the loved ones into a constant state nearly constant state of fear sometimes hopelessness anger which you express beautifully in this article Caleb and um, oftentimes finding ourselves looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, what did you expect? In other words, I trusted this time and my God, I can't believe this happened again. And I'm listening to you and I, I can feel my heart sinking because I've felt these emotions before tied to similar situations where here you are going for a week long vacation in Mexico and boom, here it is again, that monster. Right. And in this case, it was her desperate attempt to detox. Right. Right. I mean, to heal herself. Yeah, it's absolutely true. You know, you do. It takes I when I look back, I always am amazed, like how many times I went in thinking, great, this is going to be great. She's doing well now without I guess it's not fully understanding just how long this takes, mm-hmm. like how how long it can take a person to actually get well. And um, and you just, you know, you sort of pin all your hopes on that. Oh, this is going to be great. Um, yeah. You know, in this particular incident, it was, you know, we we got back to the airport, got back to Boston, and uh, she uh, asked to be dropped off at her apartment. I mean, you know, I think I cried for Mm. 24 hours straight. I just, the entire time Mm. since it happened, I just, you know, I couldn't believe it. And again, it's that you hope that this is 
oh, this is going to be great. You pin a lot of expectations on what this is going to be like. And it's nothing like that. And and of course, just the realities of (laughs) flying to Mexico, two hours, getting to your destination and basically realizing you need Uh. to you need to arrange to get right back. Um, And that's when that next morning, I remember waking up just, you know, wrecked. And uh, once we were back in Boston and uh, saying to saying to Caleb, you know, the only thing I feel like doing is going to the fells with Hank and walking through the woods. And it, it felt to me, you know, when I lay there and I was devastated and just thinking about the years that had preceded this and how I felt this was never going to change, never going to get better. It, you know, every time you think it's going to get better, you do all the things, all the rehabs, all the clinics, everything that it's never going to change. And the only thing I could think of that felt right in any way was watching Hank in the Fells. Like that to me felt like seeing something that was the way it was intended to be instead of the massive dysfunction that I felt our life had become. You know, I want to read just for a very quickly from the opening of Caleb's article. Again, it's Caleb Daniloff, who's written this absolutely beautiful article for Runner's World, February 22nd, 2023. The opening line, I had taken to writing my daughter's obituary, revising it week after week. It usually cropped up during a run, as if the movement jarred the sentences loose from the dark place where I hid my fears. But then I'd get stuck. And, you know, we were talking earlier before we came on the air about fear and Caleb's down to the bone honesty of writing your daughter's obituary in your heads um, is something I can certainly identify with. I did it hundreds of times. Oftentimes I believe out of self-protection, out of trying to visualize the worst and then seeing if I could stand in that heat, you know, absolutely. But that is the level of fear that is the level of angst that you were living with and then you go out to the fells and you start walking with hank and and running with hank and at this point you didn't have any peer support correct you were doing this correct it was just us you hank and caleb yep just a reminder that we are speaking with caleb and chris daniloff caleb is an author who has written a wonderful piece for the february 23 edition of Runner's World magazine called Running with Hank. And we are speaking with Chris and Caleb about their experience with their daughter's substance use disorder, her recovery, and their recoveries. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at wfpr.fm. Click on the Past Shows tab, and you'll see the whole library of Past Chapters episodes. And so, Caleb and Chris, along the way, you did receive uh, other support. We had contact with Heron Project, um, which is a addiction recovery organization that that I volunteer for and have been involved with, uh, you know, since about 2014. And um, there's a a guy there, Kevin Mikalazic, who was the executive director, and we were sort of in touch with him, and and he was sort of giving us some advice. It's when we first heard about sectioning. Um, 
and you know he was trying to help us line up treatment centers but you know it's you know we can try and line it up but it's up to you know get getting Shay to go is a whole other story but other than that I mean we had no that was these were phone calls you know this wasn't yeah. sitting in a room sharing stories and sharing pain and sharing resources and sharing hope right um, so no it was we and you know, all through her eating disorder, this is a regret I have, and I think Chris probably shares, is that during the eating disorder years, which was about five years, um, these precipitated the the drug abuse. Yes, yes. for Shay. Yep. Yep. This is where it began. Um, we never went to a support group for that, and I think we, in hindsight, we probably could have benefited quite a bit from it. Um, I think it was just exhausting to have to do it. Sure. It was exhausting to keep talking about it. You know, I think there was a part, at least a part of me, I felt like we can, you know, we can combat this. We can overcome this uh, with just you know with enough will and and uh, and love um, but you know it you know it just got worse yeah. and you know there's all throughout this article but but even in the beginning particularly it talks about that shock that here's this beautiful little girl that you'd both had raised and had hopes and dreams and you know Caleb says here that that kid had been replaced by someone I no longer recognized, a stranger with vacant eyes and sores hidden beneath thick makeup, thin as a coat rack, addicted to heroin and fentanyl at 25. I still couldn't believe it. Shay used to be terrified of needles. She used to be a lot of things, a soccer player, a prankster, someone who sang in the shower. Now I didn't know where she was or who she was with. I expected a pair of stone-faced cops to knock on our door any day. I couldn't think where we would bury her. And, you know, it's, it's that, you know, that's something that I refer back to a lot with my son, Jack. I can smell his hair from when he was an infant. I love the smell of baby's heads, you know, <laughs> and he had the fuzziest hair that would stand up at the slightest stack, static electricity. It's that he was a prankster. Um, he would do, he loved to play practical jokes. Um, usually I saw them, knew what was about to happen and would, everyone would pretend we didn't see it so that he got to laugh, <laughs> you know, at seven or eight years old. But there's that sense that that person has vacated the body and they have Yeah. this, this monster, this, this addiction it just robs people of the of their spirit of their souls and and that sense of desperation that you're feeling so you take to running with Hank in the fells after this Cancun trip and Hank becomes in many many ways metaphorically and actually um, tied to your journey with Shay as you kind of replay what's been happening yeah I mean in, in a lot of ways um, he served as a surrogate um, for Shay, and he was the way that I could still connect with her. I mean, he, even just watching Hank's behavior, knowing that Shay taught him that trick, there was Shay within Hank. Um, and just, you know, she, Hank has always been a representation of Shay to me, even today. Um, and so he was, he did serve that purpose um, as, as being a sort of a connector. And, and also, it's like, I, I feel like when you talked about the stranger, I mean, it's like, you know, we've had we have all these emotions toward our children, and now suddenly those emotions had nowhere to go um, because Shay was gone. She was the Shay we knew was gone, hijacked, vacant, whatever you want to say. Um, that person that we knew was 100% disappeared, or uh, 
maybe not 100%, but it felt that way at yeah. times. I remember having, you know, uh, to that, you know, I remember during this time when it was really hard, we used to have, of course, she, our daughter's an only child, so there's lots of photographs of her when she was very young, and I would... As you come into the dining room, we have these photos on various pieces of, you know, tabletops. And I would stare at those photos and really try to, you know, understand that that person was gone. Like that was such a heartbreaker. But in a way, it almost gives you a sense of, I mean, maybe it's that thing where you stop feeling the loss and you try to make peace with that, with actually what you feel exists in your life at yeah. that time. And that was for me looking at those photos. I mean, you know, at, you know, three years old, kindergarten, third grade, fifth grade, and just really saying, you know, that child doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, it was sad. It was heartbreaking. But there was something almost, you know, it's it's those of us that have struggled with children that are, um, you know, suffering with addiction will understand there's almost like a there's almost like a release when you start to accept what exists rather than beating yourself up and wondering where you went. Where did I go wrong as a parent? Right. What did I do? Right. What did I do? And that kind of is the first reflexive thought, right? What did we do wrong? Yeah. Oh, yeah, the if-onlys are torturous. Yeah. yeah. I mean, because we'd moved from Vermont to Boston, um, and I, I, I remember that I, I was pushing for that, and that's what... And, you know, and I, I, once we got to Boston, all this started to unfold. I mean, I felt racked with guilt a lot of the time that, you know, I brought her here or I, I helped, you know, I pushed to bring her here and look what's happened. And right. If only we'd stayed in Vermont. And for a long time, you know, you think that um, until you get educated and you realize that, you know, if we'd stayed in Vermont, you know, she might have just been a heroin addict in Vermont. Right. Um, exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and as someone who's experienced it myself, I felt that my divorce was a precipitating factor that you know, I, I, I could tell you a, a dozen different scenarios that I created in my head to say that's why he became an addict and darn it Jim if you'd just done your job better he wouldn't be the way he is and it's it's just a lie um, and Caleb I am very interested to know as a person living in long-term recovery yourself did you feel like gee I've been through this before myself I, I should be able I should have the wisdom that she needs and be able to usher her out of this yes um <clears throat> I mean, I felt pretty helpless, um, and I felt pretty fraudulent. I felt like a fraud. Mm. Um, I mean, I was, uh, you know, a big champion of recovery. I wrote a memoir about my own journey. I wrote a lot of essays Got about a book out. Yeah, I wrote a lot of essays about, especially about exercise and fitness and how it relates to recovery and that kind of thing. And and um, you know, I so I felt like a big fraud um, in that regard. I also so I did not do AA. Um, I didn't do the 12 steps, um, though I'm pretty familiar with them. Um, and I, f so one of the big guilt points for me was like, if only I had uh, gone to AA earlier. I mean, if I only had gone to AA, done the 12 steps, I would have been able to spot this. I would have made sort of 12 step philosophy and an everyday part of our environment at right. home. You know, she would hear me saying, I'm going to meetings. So, and then that would have, if there had been more sobriety talk in the home, um, then maybe that would have buffered her from the road. Mm -hmm. um, so in that regard, yeah, I, you know, I felt I felt uh, I felt very sort of guilty um, that I that I couldn't do anything, and that you know here I am promoting sobriety and recovery left and right, and you know my own kid is going off the rails. Right, right, and and what a powerful and sad 
emotion that would be to have. I just sitting here, it lands really heavily on me to hear you carrying that because we know um, the truth is that none of us control someone else's recovery. Right. We don't control their addiction any more so than I control whether or not my son's a diabetic or a cancer patient or you know anything anything else. The weather, we just don't. We don't have that kind of impact. I mean, this article, Running with Hank, is so beautiful about pointing towards how this relationship with the dog, this relationship with running, the physical activity of the running, as you say, one eye on the ground and one eye looking forward. What a beautiful metaphor for what it's like to parent somebody that's facing this. Um, it's almost like you're never where your feet are because right. you're always worried about the future. Right. And you're tripping. And you're tripping. Tripping and all the time. banging <laughs> your shins, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but along with running with Hank, you are also learning some skills when you do finally walk into this wonderful organization, Learn to Cope, right? And for our listeners, Learn to Cope is a peer support group which provides a structured environment for people like the Danilovs and the Derricks to get together and learn from each other as peers and support each other. And the magic is we already know the feelings, thoughts, and emotions that each other have. And as a result, it literally is like magic. It's like the anecdote. You know, the connection is the anecdote for the ales that we've had. But when do you first walk into the halls? We walked in to learn to cope um, about six months after this whole incident with Mexico when Shay, you know, we had once again sort of been at a crossroads where it's like you either we're either driving you to, to you know, a treatment center or we're going to section you. And uh, she went for 30 days. And on the I think the day before she was released, there was a family day, which for, for families. So Caleb and I. Arrived there, and there's uh, Kathy Day from Learn to Cope. Well, talking. I love Kathy. Oh, no, she's, oh, she's great. The best. She's great. She's and like, call her a warm breeze. Yes, exactly. <laughs> her, she just has an aura of warmth. She yeah. sure yeah. does. But I remember <laughs> Huge sitting fan. there, and she gives us some literature and a pen. And I remember thinking, you know, probably never going to need this because we're going to be good. And, yeah. you know, one week later, we are there. We had asked Shay, had to ask Shay to leave our house because we found out she was using the night she got back from the treatment center. Um, and we walked into our first Learn to Cope meeting. And I think for probably the first four or five months I cried through I just sat there and just wept at every at everything because mm -hmm. it was but the thing I will say like the first thing I realized until we started to learn particulars was that that feeling that you are not alone in the insanity that this is yes was the fact that you don't feel isolated and alone and like you can't talk to anybody about this so you're holding this burden you go to work during the day you're hiding this mm -hmm. and um was was an amazing weight, I think, off of both our chests, even though that first meeting, I remember really feeling angry. Like, I don't know why my life has to be devoted to this now. This is not my problem. Yeah. But it was my problem. Yeah. I just didn't know. I just didn't understand the problem fully yet to to in, in that wisdom of. The only life you can control is your own. And, and also that in this circle of people were people that had gone through exactly what we had gone through. And no one looked at us like we like, I, oh, my gosh, I can't believe the horror show that your life is. In fact, we all had the same stories. That was an amazing um, beginning for us to start to change our thinking about all of this and to learn to step back a bit and take care of ourselves because we weren't doing that. Our health was affected. 
you know, we, I'm sure we were depressed. We were like, we were PTSDing all over the place, mm-hmm. you know, looking into the faces of those that were exactly where we were and in, you know, listening to people who had gone there before us, mm-hmm. um, who had done things that we were going to learn to do, even though that night I would never have thought like, honestly, that I could ever section my petite daughter Mm -hmm. and then you know having to do just that i mean i remember walking into that first meeting i fully expected people not to be able to relate because you know i i think what we were experiencing felt like such insanity and nightmare and um you know it'd been going on so long i just i expected people to sort of you know be taken aback and when they weren't that was very striking to me. In fact, not only were they not taken aback, but you know, over the months, we realized that there are stories out there more extreme than ours. Which is jarring, yeah, it, right? It's jarring, and in a way, ours is almost sort of run-of-the-mill mm-hmm. um, of what's out there and what it's like. I had the same experience. I thought, you know, and in the halls of AA, to name one recovery method, people often say, don't compare yourself out of the room. Make sure you look for what binds you, not, you know, but I didn't take that advice. I walked in and had the same experience. I thought, wait till they get to my story. (laughs) You know, I mean, cue the music, right? Get out the crying towels because these people have heard nothing yet. Right. And oh, my goodness, was I wrong. Yes. And that that moment, you know, makes you feel like you're in the you know, you're in the right place. You know, exactly. And there's another moment from that first meeting. Um that, you know, I, I will sometimes tell um, when we arrived there, you know, and we told our story. I mean, I think we told raised our hands pretty quick because we just had to get right. it out of us. And sitting across from me uh, was another man named Caleb. Um, oh, yeah. Caleb right. T. Sure. Caleb T. Um, and and Anne. And I was when I I like so did a double take because throughout my life, I've rarely met other Caleb's. I rarely meet them. Mm-hmm. And I, I always hated my name growing up. I was self-conscious about it. I wanted to be Brendan or Terry really? or something. Yeah, I didn't. I, I was too unusual. I bet I could count on, on one hand how many Caleb's I'd met in my life. And the fact that we came to this you know small meeting in Cambridge, Massachusetts um, for, for Learn to Cope. And there, sitting across from me, is another Caleb. Same age. You know, it just spoke to me also, I mean, sadly, about the epidemic, that it just shows, like, how widespread it is. The fact that it's rare for me to meet another Caleb, but yet I meet one in a Learn to Cope meeting. Right. And his his daughter, very similar story to ours. Um, so it was... Those two moments were really sort of like, okay, I think this this could be this could be hopeful. This could work. Something could have come out of this. Now, these meetings are weekly, and right. I know you attend every week. Yeah. Um, and I, I can remember thinking at the beginning, my gosh, these poor people, they think they have to come here every week. I've got like, what, I'll do a month. And then once I figure out how to fix my son, I'm out of here. <laughs> really, I mean, I'm, I had no intention of listening to them when they spoke about things. And I'm they, I'm talking about the group, would speak about things like we need our own recovery. I said, who are they talking about? I mean, clearly that there's some other dynamic in this group that they're talking about that that's foreign to me because I don't need anything. I just need my son to get fixed. And so how about for you? And what was it like to learn that, oh, my gosh, my daughter indeed is sick. My challenge isn't to fix her because that's impossible. My challenge is to work with myself and my spouse and on our own recovery. What was that like? 
so similar to what because I felt like once this is good, I'm out of here. Like, yeah. I'm not going to keep doing this. Right. Yeah, and, who needs this? And I'm right. And I mean, Sorry, I, people. I, <laughs> God Almighty, please. I, I, yeah. I've got a life, okay? Right. right. I remember saying to a woman who's been there, like I think at the time their son was, you know, had found, was in recovery for about four or five years. And I remember saying how much I admired that they still came, that, you know, like I think it's just so admirable that you still come despite your son being in recovery for five years. And she looked at me and she said, you will too. And in my head, I'm going, not so yeah, sure. Yeah, nice not thing so to say, sure. but exactly. please. Exactly. Like, I don't yeah. know that. I don't think so. Right. And yet. Um, now you're facilitating. And- right. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, you guys have become the bedrock of uh, uh, one of one of the big bedrocks of, of our Monday night meetings. I think that that feeling of uh, finding realizing that I mean, I remember lying in bed nights because one of the things that was so hard to do for so many years was sleep. And I would yeah. wake up in the middle of the night yeah. and I would lie there in your mind just instantly goes from sleeping to 100 miles an hour right. about the horror that this is and where's my daughter and how can you know, like who she with and and the only thing that I would I would start repeating like a mantra like the only life you can control is yourself right. the only life you control is your own and I would just repeat this repeat it and repeat it you know that was a thought that was life changing and when I'd go to those meetings and you'd hear parents are going on about trying to micromanage their child's recovery and this woman would say I just got a bill for $25,000 from this, you know, place where she was at. I need to call the insurance company. And she'd say, wait a minute, it's not your bill. And it was like permission to suddenly say to yourself, like, you don't have to, you don't have to take on every responsibility that has to be theirs. And also a reminder at the time, our daughter's 25 years old. She's an adult. What am I doing? Mm-hmm. You know, like at some point I'm not going to be here. And unless she learns to get her life together in a way that works for her, I'm not, you know, it's that it's that gentle blossoming of the idea that perhaps you fixing this for them isn't actually a good thing. And and that difference between parental love and enabling, that was another... Right. Yeah. And these are concepts that are brutally difficult. Brutal. At least they were for me. And I, I based on other people's experience, I, I think it's the same. With any other illness, God forbid, a cancer diagnosis, you're doing everything for that child. You know, you are mothering them, doting over them, paying their bills, they're lying on your couch, you're doing whatever you can. This is the one illness where that is like feeding sugar to a diabetic. You are literally feeding addiction by making it comfortable for that person in their environment. When you take the, re- the responsibilities that they have to pay their own bills, to maintain their old lives, to, ma- to be respectful, to keep boundaries in the home that normal people would keep, when you allow them to live in that environment and ignore the consequences for those types of things, then you then you're literally feeding the addiction like sugar to a diabetic. And the addiction says, hey, this is comfortable. Why bother changing? Right. Exactly. So but it's like patting a cat backwards. How do you untrain being a mother? How do you untrain being a father? I, take, I mean, it takes a long, long time. Right. It takes a long time. You have to first <clears throat> accept that idea. And that takes a long time. Um, and then to start executing it, you know, that's a whole other uh, other ball of wax. Um, I mean, I think for me, and I was, f- we were fortunate that this 
there was a guest speaker in one of our early meetings, maybe third or fourth meeting, and he uttered the phrase, uh, when the family changes, the attic changes. And that stuck with me. That really has always stuck with me, and I'm so glad that I heard it so early because I thought about it a lot. I didn't, I didn't know what it meant exactly. Um, and my first, I, I knew somehow it was important, and I, it embedded itself in, in my head. I was fighting it a lot, you know, like, why should, why should we have to change? Mm-hmm. She's the one with the problem. Right. You know, she did this. She's, this is all her doing. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what it, did we do something wrong now that now that we have to, you know, have to perform some sort of uh, act here in order to, to move the needle? Um, you know, and then it just started to dawn on me that if, you know, if you can start changing the dynamic just slightly, um, that's going to force them to relate to your new dynamic differently. It's going to start a tiny little ripple of change. I mean, this takes, you know, a long time. But, it does. Um, and the other quote that I often come back to, and it's very, it's very similar. It's a Victor, Victor Frankl quote, and mm. you hear it a lot in, in meetings, is, uh, you know, when you are no longer able to change a situation, you're challenged to change yourself. I took that to heart. I think you took that to heart. Go, we went on a vacation. You know, I don't think we had gone on vacations in a long time during her all of her struggles. And in your article, you say you finally gave yourself permission, yeah, to go on this vacation. And that's that's a hard fought permission. Yeah, and it wasn't a great vacation. Right, right. <laughs> um, Been there. <laughs> but the but the again, I think when you start listening to to the people who have been there before you, mm-hmm. like I was always struck. All the parents have exactly the same stories as ours. The you know the traumas, the story with their kids, how they've been manipulated, yeah. and then. I think, you know, with this vacation, you know, it was like I didn't really want to go. But right. but Caleb and I kept saying to each other, too, you know, if something happens, then we just go back. You know, yeah. it's like it's going to happen whether we're here or whether we're at home. Yeah. And, you know, and it felt like a, a little bit of a torture to even have to try and go on yeah. vacation, yeah. you know. But you you do start to that thought of your recovery it, it was a wild idea to me mm-hmm. at first, like, wow, like like we actually have to work at recovery. Mm-hmm. We've been focused solely on fixing this issue with our child that, you know, suddenly you realize, yeah, you're hardly functioning yourself right. and you don't take care of yourself. I'll remind folks, we are speaking with Caleb and Chris Daniloff. Caleb is an author. Uh, and has written a beautiful piece for Runner's World, which appears in the February 22nd edition. Please go out and, and check it out. It's I'm sure it's available online. Yep. Uh, it is just a fabulous piece. And the name of the article is Running with Hank. And uh, Chris and Caleb are members of Learn to Cope. They're facilitators there. They also have a wonderful fund with the Heron Project, where they support the efforts of uh, the Heron Project. And we'll talk a little bit about that and provide links to that along with this podcast. I do want to quote from this article. In Running with Hank. Hank is Shay, the Daniloff's daughter, who is struggling with substance use disorder and in this case uh, has become addicted to fentanyl and heroin. And Caleb and, and Chris find themselves caring for Shay's beautiful pup while she is out on what we call runs, or that would be prolonged uh, uses of, of drugs where she was unavailable to her pup and to her parents. And uh, Caleb talks about running through the fells with Hank. And I'm going to quote here from the article. Hank at the Fells came to represent not just a sanctuary, but a place to manage my hopelessness. I started leaving my watch behind and even my sunglasses, no matter how bright the day. 
I wanted Hank to see my eyes when he looked back at me. I didn't want anything to get in the way of our connection. I memorized his movement, the way he scuttled straight up a rock, I'm sorry, straight up a rock face reminded me to act with intention. The times he selfishly ignored commands while wallowing in a pile of excrement or barking at another runner reminded me to text my daughter that I loved her. Seeing him chase a squirrel up a tree, hugging the trunk, lunging at a branch high out of reach encouraged me not to give up. And then you go on to say, by then I had become convinced that things with Shay would end badly. So when Hank eventually vanished into the woods, I'd instantly start catastrophizing. On one run, he scampered ahead, scaling a tumble of rocks on sure feet, a blur of brindle. I ran behind, picking my way among tree roots and saplings. When I scrambled to the top of the overlook, I was met with silence. I listened for the jangle of Hank's tags. Nothing. I heard a woodpecker hammering in bursts. I called and whistled. I clapped and willed him to materialize out of the woods. The fells is a big reservation. There are coyotes and large territorial owls, and I was sure other kinds of predators were around too, who might snatch up a loose dog for a fighting ring. If anything happened to Hank, I was scared I'd break apart. It would be too much to bear. I whistled and jogged over a few roots, head on a swivel. There, sitting like a sentinel at the bend up ahead, his tiger stripes blending with the shadows and leaves and tangled underbrush, waiting. I took his face in my hands and kissed his broad skull. Remember this, I told myself. That is such a beautiful and real demonstration of what the journey with a loved one and the trauma, what it feels like. Many times, my son Jack was lost in the woods. And the desperation that you convey through that is so palpable, Caleb. And I know you felt that's exactly what you were reaching for there, is that desperate sense that, my God, Shay may be out of reach this time. Yeah. I mean, when he, and he would vanish in the woods like that on, on occasion. Um, and even though he'd come back all the previous times, I would start losing my mind, thinking this is the end. Um, and so when he, I came to look at it like, those runs, especially when he would disappear and I'd lose sight of him, I couldn't hear the chat tags anymore, he was sort of out of my reach, as you said, um, I came to see those as an exercise in my capacity to have faith. And because I felt like I was losing, um, I was losing hope. Um, and so I felt like those moments, it's almost like a muscle that I had to exercise. And every time... Hank came back, I, I would tell myself, remember this, you know, he came back, you know, there, it wasn't hopeless. He did come back. Um, so what, to me, it was a, it was a way of sort of blowing on the embers of my sort of tiny bit of faith that I, that I had. Um, so, so he did certain, you know, that was sort of a, um, a little exercise that he put me through. You know, it's so accessible for people, this writing, because I may not, if I don't have never experienced a loved one with substance use disorder, I may not be able to relate to that type of trauma. But people can relate to losing an animal. They can. I lost my son on a beach once when he was three years old, and I spent, it seemed like five days, but it was about 30 minutes. He was lost in a crowd. We did. They had a line of lifeguards. You know, we've all been there. 
but it's that repeated trauma. Because as you said earlier, Chris, that that hope that reappears when Shay or Jack or any any one of these folks, when, when they appear in our, at our door clear-eyed and say, this is the time, I'm feeling great, I just came out of rehab, you know, it's that escalation of hope and then that crushing defeat when they need more time to get well and their disease reappears, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. And I think... Again, as parents, it takes us a while to realize that it's, like you say, it's it takes time. And I think I certainly, you know, you'd have all your hope on this, like, you know, for them, for you, like, this is the turning point. And, uh, you know, and then you learn to sort of just be with what is in the moment mm-hmm. and not... You know, like you said, you know, we're always looking forward. It's just sort of like to take what it is for the day Mm -hmm. in the way that I feel like 12-step programs talk about that, you know, day by day, Mm -hmm. you know, you're living in the day. Like as parents, we have to do that, too, because that roller coaster of Mm -hmm. believing it's all going to change now and then it doesn't and you're right back in it is crushing. And, And the magic of that moment where you take that first vacation, to me, that's the first step. Where you're saying, as lousy as this vacation is going to be, and it was, because <laughs> yeah. you're not there yet. But you're saying, you're saying, look, I've got to increase my capacity and my understanding that this is our journey. Exactly. And I'm, you're starting to separate from Shay. I don't mean separate emotionally as your as her parents, but I mean you're understanding that she's on her recovery journey, Absolutely. and your journey needs its own life and air Absolutely. and space, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And it does. Again, that's another thing that takes a long time to recognize. Um, I think I didn't really rec. I mean, that trip was kind of a turning point and probably laid the groundwork for that understanding. Um, but it was when she relapsed um, after being sober for a year when I sort of it really came home to me that we were on separate journeys and we needed to be on separate journeys because during that time after we sectioned her and then um, you know she went on Vivitrol, went to sober living up in Maine, um, seemed to be doing well. And, uh, you know, I feel like uh, and we were going up there all the time. And I, I mean, there were some suspicions that things weren't quite right um, toward the end. But. You know, we'd go up there, go grocery shopping for her, get her clothes. We were still heavily invested in her journey of recovery. Um, I mean, I, we'd send, you know, one-month anniversaries, sending, you know, congratulations and two-month anniversaries. I mean, everything was just cheerleading left and right. And so when she relapsed, it was devastating. Right, it, it was is. totally devastating because yeah. you just are so invested emotionally. And I, I, when that happened, I really realized that, you know, I have to divest. Yes. I had to divest. And, um, and you know, that's what I did. And I, I feel like I've, I, I did recognize that there are these parallel tracks that we're on, some, and sometimes they intersect. Um, but but there, we're on our own journey of recovery, and Shay's on her journey of recovery. Mm-hmm. And uh, the metaphor that I think of is when you see the space shuttle go up, and there there it's a con- it's a contained unit uh, going up with a booster on it, and then you see that booster fly off, and you see that separation. I, I that was just something that stuck in my brain uh, in terms of what my recovery looked like with Jack, and that and that he had a journey of his own, and I had one of my own, and we needed to we started as a locked unit, right. Uh, and then we, we went off. And um, I'm curious, let's talk a little bit about the power of peer support through Learn to Cope. I mean, because it brought us together mm-hmm. in a way that I'll talk about in a minute, uh, literally changed my life. 
how, how was it for you? What is what is what is the impact of having direct peer support, and why does it work so well? Do you think? Uh, I'm, I mean, I agree with you. It changes your life. I think that it was only when we got involved with Learn to Cope that I even really started to be able to comprehend, like see a glimmer of light mm-hmm. to my own recovery. Like I didn't even realize that I had a problem. Like I felt like I'm fine, you know, like I don't have a problem. Um, but then you do start understanding that as a parent, you know, you, like you, it, like the booster and the rocket, you know, is, is a perfect, you know, you are so connected to that kid and everything they do and whether they do it the way you think they should do it or they don't or if they and it's not realistic. But you don't I didn't see that, you know, that and that I wasn't going to be able to fix this by by the actions that I w- was trying to take. I was not going to be able to fix this. But. In this group of people who all had felt it, to me, it seemed like everyone had felt the same way until they realized that that's not what works, that it is enabling. Like you say, it's like putting gas on a fire when you're being a parent to an addict by paying for groceries and paying for rent and getting them out of problems that, you know, they're, they're, you know, bringing into their lives because of their addiction to substances. So... The peers really had an impact on me. They they'd lived. They had been living our life, and that struck me. I didn't feel alone in this. Mm-hmm. I felt like it was a place we could go and we could tell our story, and people understood. They'd been there, and they were able to tell us things that, you know, like the only life you can control is your own. They were able to tell us things like when the family changes, the addict can change. Things like they don't need us, they need professionals. That was a big one for me too, that realizing that I wasn't I wasn't what Shay needed. I need to step back, you know, like disconnect with love. She needs professionals that can actually, they know what to do with someone that's struggling with addiction. I don't, I'm her mom. Um, I still remind myself of those things today. And, you know, thankfully, Shay is, you know, three plus years sober. She's doing great. But I still go to these meetings and you're helping. Like Caleb said, we went to that meeting to save our daughter. We ended up saving ourselves. And uh, to this day, I still remind myself of these things. It's important for me to remember that, you know, you know, this is her journey. And, you know, for me, it's it's my journey, too. Beautifully put. All of this. Caleb, the, the power of having a shared common experience, as intense as this one, is really palpable. And I kind of want to illustrate that for our listeners. I met you, I believe, through Zoom. We met when Maura Healy came down to the offices. To talk, right. Yeah. About a year ago. So it's important to me to emphasize that we were mostly communing over Zoom. Correct. Wonderful Learn to Cope meetings. Correct. And... Um, there was something about you both that drew me to you. It's your energy. It's your calmness. It's your, it's your compassion. Um, and I want people to understand that, I, that we didn't know each other. We're not long lost friends from, from years ago. And the reason I'm giving this backdrop is we had been battling with our son, Jack, witnessing him suffering from substance use disorder like Shay. His had escalated to heroin and, and fentanyl. And um, we were terrified, and, and so many of the emotions that Caleb is so beautifully illustrated in this article, I can directly identify with, as most can that have been through this. Jack 
succumbed to a, a accidental overdose on July 15th of 2022. You know, one of the things about my own recovery was I remember being on the plane with his brother. We got notified at about 8.30 at night on July 15th. And so the next morning, July 16th, at about 5 in the morning, I'm, or 6 in the morning, we're taking off from Tampa Airport. And I remember this really palpable feeling coming over me. I had, like you, rehearsed this in my mind and thought, I don't think I can survive. I won't make it if something happens. And I remember thinking, my God, I'm not responsible for this. That's not to say that I wasn't devastated, but I was convinced for so many years that it was my failing. It was what Caleb said. If I'd only had a different household environment, if I'd only not been divorced, if I'd only done something, hadn't yelled at him or been so stern with him, if there were a million different reasons, about a dozen of them, that I was sure that I was responsible for his illness. Through Learn to Cope, through relationships like we have, I learned week after week after week after week after week until it became muscle memory that Jack was on his own journey and I was on mine. As much as I loved him, I couldn't fix him any more so than anybody can change the trajectory of my life and my illness. We were on our own separate journeys. That gift was so palpable in that moment, 12 hours after his death, and I thought, I, I, my, the amount of grief I had was matched by gratitude. And I think that makes sense to you. And then the amount of support I got from Learn to Cope people. I just don't have the words to express. I, I measure the cards in pounds. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> and I got bird feeders because somebody overheard me on a meeting right. say that, yes. I, that I love cardinals and they represented the spirit. And um, I got bird seed. I mean, people people were just unbelievable. And Caleb, the gift of the absolutely beautiful article that you wrote about Jack, which was a tribute to Jack, and in, and in many ways in tribute to Learn to Cope and to people like us. And, um, you know, it, it's framed and it hangs in my, in my uh, living room. And it was such a gift to know that you saw me. You heard Jack, that he counted, that he mattered, and that his experience was something that not only could you relate to, but you felt was important enough to relate to other people. But you weren't done. I then got notified by Caleb <laughs> or asked permission for him to run the London Marathon with my son's prayer card and that he was going to dedicate the run to Jack. Um When people are sick with this illness, there's a stripping of dignity that they go through. And in, as parents, I feel that sometimes we feel stripped of dignity. There's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of shame. There's sores on their body. There's homelessness. There's a lack of hygiene. They do things that they're not proud of to support their disease. And when Caleb ran through the streets of London with my son's prayer card and held it up in front of various monuments, Big Ben, the castle, 
Jack mattered. I knew he mattered. But I was afraid nobody else would. And the gift that this man gave me and my family and my son with his act of generosity is something that I just don't really have adequate words to express. It took an absolutely horrible experience for me and my family and made it livable. And I shared the pictures that Caleb sent of Jack with everybody I knew. I was so, I'm so proud that Jack mattered in that article, that companion piece. And I share all of this story because that is what Learn to Cope represents. That if there's a poster for what Learn to Cope represents, it's Chris and Caleb Daniloff. It is, as I said, life-altering, life-changing, and life-saving. And I'll never forget it. And because, because it's Caleb, of course, that wasn't the end. I get a package. It seems like he hadn't even landed back at the airport. <laughs> and he sends me a running shirt, which he swears he washed. I have trouble believing that. With Jack's name across the front of it. That he had ran through London. And his medal which having run one marathon in my life, I can't imagine running multiple marathons makes it any different. It is a grueling, grueling process. But for someone to send you their medal, engraved, dedicated to Jack. Um, like I said, I just don't have the words and I can't thank you enough. But I share this story to thank you more than that, my hope is that someone out there hears this and realizes that we're just normal people whose children have had a horrifying illness. And we found our way to the halls of this wonderful organization, Learn to Cope, where we could actually come into community together, find our own recovery, and as proof that the recovery works, I'm sitting here today with you. Shay FaceTimed you about an hour ago, and I was thrilled to see her beaming, beautiful smile out in Colorado, working in the field of recovery, happy, you know, healthy, yeah. three years in recovery. And Jack, unfortunately, succumbed to an accidental overdose. And you know what? From the bottom of my heart, I'm thrilled for Shay. And I'm thrilled for every single person in recovery that finds recovery. Jack couldn't couldn't get it. Not for lack of effort. That's He's right. a courageous, courageous young man. But the power of this healing is that I was codependent on Jack. I only could show up if he was well. And if he wasn't well, I was a wreck the definition of codependency prior to me joining an organization like Learn to Cope. And now, clearly, 
I could sit here and smile and laugh with you and celebrate Shay and celebrate all the wonderful parts of Jack's story, which include the generosity and the and the grace that you showed me and my family. Um, but but I, can, I, I have a life and I can manage a life with grief and joy at the same time. I can hold both and I have an abundance of both right now and appreciation and gratitude for the gifts um, of this thing. So thank you for letting me share that story. But oh, I think it's you. I think it's really illustrative of what this organization does and the power of healing. I just want to go back to, you know, a few things about um, your experience and the, our communal experience at, at Learn to Cope. Um, I remember when we got the news about Jack, it was, de- I think everyone was devastated. I felt devastated. Chris felt devastated. Um, these moments happen, um, and we know all know each other, and we know our kids' journeys. We're, all these stories, we're invested in them emotionally, and when something happens, it's it's horrible um and i was i really i couldn't believe that you would then come to learn to cope that monday um i was i just i didn't know like how you could do it um i mean i don't know that chris and i are the faces of learn to cope so much i mean when i think of learn to cope i think about you I think about Jim and Nikki. I think about Doris. I think about Kathy. I think about Colleen. All the all the regulars. Um, you know Caleb and Ann. Um, and you have always, I've always been struck at the wisdom that you drop, um, even in your moment of probably the most searing grief. Um, you're dropping wisdom. Um, you're always the first to drop your phone number in the chat. And I I just you know I've always just been so impressed um, by your participation in you know in this group um and what struck me that night and i think i put it in the article was something that miriam said about jack and that jack is really the hero in the story and that that was my huge takeaway from that meeting because it put everything into perspective because like you are so wise because of jack that's right you are so wise because of jack that's right and his experience you learned from he taught you and you've been teaching us. And that is part of this whole communal thing that, that we're talking about. Um, and I just, you know, I just, you know, our loved ones, like you said, no matter how low they get, you know, they still matter and they can still teach us. Um, and their lives matter, no matter, no matter what. It was an absolute honor to, you know, to run in Jack's memory. Um, and, uh, the the funny thing was, I remember after the race, Chris and I went to, um, I think it was Oxford Street or something, and we walked by the, you know, and this was like the day after the race, I think, and there were people walking around in marathon jackets, and there was this long line outside the New Balance store, and we we're like, what, you know, what's going on there? And uh, um, so we sort of circled around. It was like, obviously, they, these were marathon runners. They had their suitcases. They were doing something at New Balance store. Then they were going to go to the airport and leave. And, and they uh, all had their medals in their hands. And they all had their medals <laughs> in their hands. And stopped a woman on the street. And I said, do you know what's... And she was wearing a marathon jacket and had her medal. And she's like, I was like, do you know what's going on there? And she's like, oh, you can get your medal engraved. And, uh, and I didn't have my medal with me. Um, I don't, I'm not one of those types that wears their medal the day after, and um, I just I feel too, too self-conscious. By the way, in spirit of disclosure, I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be wearing it right now. <laughs> A year later. It was so, but anyway, continue. Yeah. 
<laughs> so so I was like, okay, we're coming. So we came back the next day, um, and you know, but it was just it just felt like one of those moments, like. What if we hadn't gone to Oxford Street yeah. that day? Yeah. What, and what if we'd never known about? Because it wasn't for some reason it wasn't well advertised like right. a, that this was happening. I had no idea that they were engraving medals. Yeah, I think the spirit moved there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so and it was just like it was perfect. It's like, of course, this is getting Jack's name on it. And yeah, um, what a so. gift! What a gift! Like it's it's hard even to capture it. But this is the magic of healing. I mean, I'd, I'd love to say that, you know, I'm everything you said I am. Uh, you know, I'm, I just showed up. The reason why I came back to that meeting 48 hours later, and from the bottom of my heart, the feeling, the emotion, the energy behind it, was I need my people. This is my comfort. The right. faces on the screen. I needed a place where everyone knew the story. Right. And and the amount of support I just got by opening that screen up and looking in people's eyes and scanning around, I had to have it. It's like you go home to your mom when you're sick. It was that feeling. That was the energy behind it. That's saying a lot. You know, that's saying a lot. And Joanne Peterson, Kathy Day... Uh, Linda, I could go on and on and on about the staff and, and the way they've created this environment. It's a deliberately, Learn to Cope is a structured support group. It looks easy. It ain't easy. There's structure behind it. Facilitators are trained. The space that they hold and create for people, for grief, for joy, for being able to hold all those competing emotions. Because in the same meeting, there may be a family like me who's bereaving a loss and another family who's celebrating yet another anniversary of recovery. How do you create space where both of those things can be held and, 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 and celebrated and grieved at the same time? And, and Learn to Cope does it. And it's 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 a miracle because I have so much to learn from you still because I'm on my own recovery journey. I'm not tied to Jack as much as I love him and as much as I grieve his loss. I'm still on my own recovery journey. So I'm still learning from you through Shay. And you're still learning from me in some ways influenced by Jack. Absolutely. Not in some ways influenced by yeah. Jack. So it's it's just a magical thing. And I want to encourage people to donate to learn to cope. It's learn the numeral two cope.org. Go there. First of all, as a as a you won't find a better support group for families. So I urge you to do that. And if you're interested in supporting the mission, please do, because that's how Learn to Cope survived, uh, survives and thrives. And there's another important cause that you ran for, which is the Heron Project. And I know that Pam Rickard, who is the director of uh, active engagement down at Team Heron Project has been raising funds and awareness through fitness and running for a long, long time and has been very instrumental in your running efforts along with supporting the Heron Project. And so, Caleb, I want to give you the opportunity to speak about the Heron Project and how people can support them. Sure. Um, I mean, the Heron Project is a addiction recovery organization that helps uh, individuals and families navigate the world of recovery and treatment. Um, they offer support groups as well for all family members and individuals. Um, they were helpful with Shay in terms of uh, facilitating sober living. They offer scholarships for, uh, for, for sober housing. Um, 
you know, it's a really a grassroots organization. It was started by Chris Heron, a former right. NBA player. Who's a fantastic speaker. He's an unbelievable speaker. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, recovering uh, heroin addict. And... Um, you know, I've been involved for, you know, five or six years. I do, you know, one of the big components of Heron Project is the is Team Heron Project, which um, is basically fundraising for races. Um, so there's representation and fundraising for, you know, all the big marathons, but mm-hmm. small races as well, Falmouth mm-hmm. and Newport 10 Miler. And um, it's really grown into this, also into sort of this community of, uh, you know, people in recovery and people affected by, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those who are using mm-hmm. family members. Um, so it's really got a great community feel and uh, um, it's all, it's nonprofit and most of the money that's raised, you know, does come through the, the running program. Um, I mean, they get, you know, big donations uh, outside of that as well, but, uh, you know, it's helped a lot of people. Uh, sure has. And as, as you said, it's a great organization. I want to encourage people to go to www.herrenproject.org. Uh, check them out. Yeah. Um, importantly, donate. It is a nonprofit. They are really moving mountains and kind of, I, I call it changing the landscape for how we intersect with substance use disorder. Yeah. You know, both we as parents and, and people that are impacted directly uh, with that disease. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, Caleb, I know that you want to leave our listeners with a message. Um, what is that message? I think that you're not alone um, and that uh, you may feel that, uh, you know, you've been doing this for years and getting nowhere. Um, but there there are there is support out there and there's plenty of people who know exactly how you feel. There, there are there are outcomes that are positive in this world. There are, and yeah. and and it, this is a beautiful story. And Chris, uh, off the air, just mentioned that there's some comments in the article where people are, are glad to see one, um, because this is a, a terrible disease. And Shay, uh, today is living in recovery, and you have your daughter back. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And even, even when we were in the the darkest part of it where we really didn't think it was going to ever happen for us. Someone would come into the Learn to Cope group and we would listen to stories of recovery and thinking, you know, and I'd think, well, gosh, you know, if this person found recovery at 48 years old, there is, you know, and our daughter is 25, 26, there's hope. And you'd still get a little glimmer even when you thought, you know, I just don't think this is going to happen for us. But you knew that it did happen. It does happen. Yeah, it does. It sure does. Recovery happens, and we celebrate that, including our own recovery. And I do want people to please go out and get this article. You know, I had to read it. I've read it probably 20 times um, because the metaphors are buried in there. Caleb is just such a wonderful and gifted writer. In the conclusion of the article, Running with Hank, that appears in February's Runner's World magazine, is a beautiful entry dedicated to the triumphant return of Shay. And Caleb, if you wouldn't mind reading that passage for us. On a visit home last year, Shay and I took Hank to the fells, treading over the rough paths I'd come to know so well. Isn't there a place where you can see the city, she asked. I knew the spot. I had often stopped there with Hank, wondering where Shay was among all those buildings so far out of reach. On the way, Hank hopped and frolicked like he always did, chasing a squirrel up a tree, ever the optimist. Shay and I talked about her spiritual practice, her classes, and her job processing people as sick as she once was. While her path was still unfolding and not yet well lit, she had rejoined the living, pushed forward by a slowly burgeoning belief in her own worth. 
We came to the overlook. She skipped ahead, tr Hank trotting after her. Then she asked me to take a picture of her with Hank. He sidled up to her as she sat, resting on the large stone slab. They still looked good together, him tucked in the crook of her arm, her blonde hair blowing across her face, a slight smile beneath wind-chapped cheeks. I put the camera up and held it there a second, framing the two of them, the ribbon of interstate behind, the gleaming Encore casino looming in the background. A breeze ruffled the trees. I watched them through the screen for a moment, both patient and still, just sitting there. What a beautiful ending to just an incredible article and one of the things Caleb has started is a group called Write to Cope which is a weekly group uh, where people use writing therapeutically and um, Caleb you say even I might have a shot in that group <laughs> yeah I think you'd be a standout <laughs> <laughs> hey will you give me a medal because <laughs> I'll wear it you'll have to engrave it yourself though <laughs> but writing is uh, is Caleb's um, incredible talent and and please go out and get this runner's world article called running with Hank February 22nd runner's world magazine don't forget learn to cope learn the numeral two cope.org if you or a loved one needs help and of course the heron project we'll have links to all of those in this podcast and so for my wonderful beautiful guests who i love dearly both chris and caleb daniloff my name is jim derrick saying thanks for listening to chapters radio and we'll see you next week